Dose of Leadership Podcast, episode 113. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership Podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. This is your host, Richard Ryerson. I gotta tell you, I give a heartfelt thanks to all of the listeners out there. If it wasn't for you guys, this show would even be possible. The whole reason why this show exists is because of your support. So if you can, please spread the word. Let your friends, your family, your coworkers, let them know about this show. Spread the word about Dose of Leadership. Share this podcast, share the links, let them get tuned in. And I love to hear from you. And I can't tell you how much your support means to me. It means a lot to me. And I look forward to going forward on this leadership journey with you. And if you haven't heard right now, I have a new podcast too if you want to check it out. It's just me for about 10 to 15 minutes a day called the Courageous Leadership Podcast. And again, if you can uh, spread the word about that one as well, it would mean a lot to me as I am in new and noteworthy, but to keep that momentum up and to grow that organic audience, I need your help. I need your support. So spread the word. Fred's family, coworkers, let them know about both the Dose of Leadership Podcast and the Courageous Leadership Podcast. And again, thanks so much for your support. What a privilege and honor is to have on my show today, Andrew Bryant. He's the author of a very popular book, Self-Leadership, How to Become a More Successful, Efficient, and Effective Leader from the Inside Out. He develops people and leaders in the Asia-Pacific region. He's in Singapore right now. It's 7 o'clock in the morning, 5 o'clock here in the United States where I'm at. And he's an inspirational speaker, executive coach, and experienced facilitator. He's known for his constructive realism and sense of humor, which helps senior executives transform their thinking and behavior to be more authentic and effective. Andrew, welcome to the Dose of Leadership podcast. Thank you, and uh, good morning or good evening, Richard. Yeah, well, you know, you're a busy man, and thank you for taking the time. You know, we're talking about how much speaking and coaching that you do, and you just got back, so thank you for waking up this morning and, and talking to us about uh, common sense leadership. So how did it all start with you? How did you get so passionate about leadership? Um, for me, it goes way back. Um, I actually graduated as a physiotherapist in uh, 1982 in the United Kingdom. Um, I'd originally uh, intended to do medicine, but I didn't quite get the grades on the, on the first pass, and I did physiotherapy. And I did a couple of years in hospitals, but I did what most male physiotherapists do is I got involved in sport. And if you think way back into the 80s, uh, there was no sports psychology, no sports science. And in fact, the field of psychology was very much around fixing broken people, post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, etc. So when I started working with athletes, the, the physical side was what I was trained in, although I had an undergrad in psychology. I mean, as part of the undergrad, psychology was there. And, and we looked at peak performance, not fixing people, but you know, what's the difference that makes the difference in terms of making them better? And, and we looked for everything we could in terms of helping them to do that. Um, and around this time, this was, you know, there was hypnosis and neurolinguistic programming um, and some sort of fringe, as it were, sort of psychological uh, methodal- modalities, I guess, as, as well as just the early research around goal setting. And so I got involved in helping sports people to be, to be more effective. And I found that I, I was much more excited about the, the mental edge than I was about the physical because mm. you know, that's, you know, the, the science of that was fairly well established. And, um, 
And as, as I began to, to coach rather than tell sports people, and again, in the 80s is absolutely the birth of coaching. Right. You know, the, the idea that we ask a question, you know, what is it that you're thinking? What could you be thinking to enable you to be more effective? Um, and, and as I started to get results, um, I began to be noticed by business. I, I had moved in the, in the late 80s to Australia, which is um, highly sports <laughs> focused. Yeah, right. And one day I got I had a phone call from a managing director who said, well, you're, I hear you're the guy that's helped my sports team improved, uh, improved. now come, come and work with my management team because they need some help. And, and I did a transition into, into the management team. And, and by this time I also had a postgraduate in traditional Chinese medicine. So um, in, in TCM you, you look at a much more holistic system, systemic diagnosis versus the sort of simple cause-effect diagnosis in Aristotelian thinking. And so I approached um, teams and leadership with a sort of know-nothing attitude uh, from my medical training, prescription without diagnosis is malpractice. So I I just began to ask questions and, you know, who's performing, who's not, why are they performing, why are they not, what are the factors, what are they thinking, what's the environment doing? And I began to form a model. And as I applied that model, I got results. And uh, the results excited me that uh, I was making a difference. And, and that was the start. That's amazing. You know, I, I'm so embryonic in my my coaching, too. It's something that's new, but it, it was so amazing to me. And it sounds, it, it it's almost embarrassing to admit how common sense it seems, but sometimes that common sense solution or that, that common sense uh, truth is so hard to see sometimes. And that's what I found out about coaching. And I agree with you that the idea of, not telling, but asking questions and, and going with the belief that uh, the person has the answers already with them. And, and as a coach, you try to extract it from them. It made perfect sense to me when someone finally told me about it. So um, you, you even, you kind of, that's one of your topics, right? You talk about the whole idea of asking and not telling, right? Absolutely. And of course, um, it, it's tough to, to go to an audience and say, you need to ask, don't tell, because you're actually telling them to ask, don't <laughs> right, tell. Right. So uh, I do a number of sort of demonstrations and sort of behavioral-based learning uh, examples where I clearly demonstrate that telling somebody actually has much less of a, an output than actually asking that person how they might solve the problem. And, and when people sort of viscerally experience the power of ask, don't tell, the lights come on. Yeah. You know, I saw it for the first coaching exercises I, where I saw that was we were told to, in the coaching exercises, teach somebody how to juggle three balls, you know, and they gave the three little bean bags with instructions and no one could do it. But then when they showed you how to extract it from them, it was amazing just by asking the bulk of the people started learning how to juggle just within that, you know, that hour. It was amazing. Yeah, it is. Well, the original experiment for that was done by a guy called John Whitmore, who is now Sir John Whitmore. Who, who actually challenged golf pros to train non-golfers in an hour. Um, and, and he took another group and he didn't tell them how to, to hit a golf ball, he asked them how to hit a golf ball. And time and time again, he proved that if you just take novice golfers, that he is a novice, uh, well, a non-golfer, but a coach could get better results than a golf pro, which was very embarrassing to the golf pros. Because if you think about it, if you've ever tried golf, you pick up the stick and there's all this information overload. You know, here's right. how you hold the stick, how's you bend your knees, here's how you hold your shoulder, hold this elbow straight, bend this elbow, swing, focus. And the brain just overloads and, and, and results in very poor performance. When you ask somebody, well, what are you trying to achieve? How do you think you might want to go about that? What's working for you? What's not? The, the 
innate intelligence kicks in and right. the person actually gets results. That's amazing. Can you name a person who's been a tremendous impact for you as a leader? I mean, who was it, a, a mentor, someone that, uh, how did this person impact your life? That's a good question. I mean, I, I'm a great believer in mentorship. And, um, you know, uh, but the interesting thing for me is that, you know, I, I, I've, been a, I've been a rolling stone, as it were. I'm gathering no moss. I've moved considerably. Um, and, and I've had sort of multiple people that have influenced me. Um, I think... Uh, the you know people like Covey when when you know his his seven habits was mm. important Peter yeah. Senge and his systems thinking so those sort of from an academic perspective of of considering the gap between uh, stimulus and response um, uh, the the concept of of the unconscious mind from Dr Milton Erickson the the founder of modern medical hypnosis sort of impacted me tremendously when I when I look at um, uh, you know, seeing people that uh, that their their followers are loyal, and, and this is somebody you won't know, but um, one of the person, people I coached who was an ex Disney executive actually that moved to Asia, worked with the Hong Kong uh, Yacht Club, and then worked with as the as the CEO of Sentosa Island, which is a small island off Singapore. Um, I coached him and his team, but I remember the day he left. Uh, to go to, a, you know, he was, he was headhunted to go to another organization and he was actually in his office packing his own box of stuff, you know, ready to leave, almost as if he's been fired, you know, right. pack, packing your box of stuff. And there were people in the corridors crying. And, you know, I, I've seen people cry with joy when a leader has left, but these people <laughs> were crying with sadness. And even though I'd been this, this chap's coach, I said to him, I said, oh, you know, people are crying. You know, they're, they're, I've never seen that sort of level of, of emotion when a, uh, when a when a leader is leaving. And I said, what do you think that is? And he said, well, I trust them. And, uh, and then I've gained their trust. And it was interesting that, you know, he trusted them first before they trusted him, which mm. is, is really courageous as a leader. Yeah. And I, mem I remember sharing the platform with him. We, we, we did a kickoff for some, uh, for some postgraduate education with, with that organization. And, and I spoke and he spoke. And I remember him telling a story about how he'd made a mistake. And he'd said to his people, Look, I'd rather you didn't make mistakes, but if you are going to make mistakes, could you make your mistakes less expensive than my mistakes? <laughs> <laughs> and it was just—it was just—it was a sort of a beautiful piece of humility and uh, and a setting up the sort of the, the mindset that there is no failure, only feedback for improvement, which is a, which is a mantra that I pass on to to the people I'm working with. Yeah, you know, it makes me think about you know when we're you, you look at uh, when a your child or your baby's trying to learn how to walk for the first time and they stumble and all the joy that's around when someone's taking their first steps and somewhere we you know in which you're celebrating that that failure you don't even look at it as failure right you look at it as progress but somewhere along the line we kind of lose sight of that and we tend to focus on the failures it seems like i wish we could always have that joy in almost everything that we do and i guess we can we have the power to do that we do i mean there are certain sort of mission critical things where you know a, a tolerance from error is very sure. very small um, but there's always a ramp up before we get to that point. And unfortunately, the fear of failure actually becomes institutionalized. Here in, here in Singapore, the local term is kiasu, which is fear of failure. And, and there becomes a kiasu attitude, which is, you know, I'm not going to even bother to try because if I try and I fail, I lose face. Mm. Um, and that's too risky. So I'm going to take the safe road. 
Now, obviously, that's not everywhere, but the, you know, the fact that this has been encoded, that there is a kiasu, there's a word for it, um, and, and it's, it's definable as a sort of a behavioral attribute, um, that, that's concerning. Has, has there been much of a, uh, I mean, you've been there for quite some time you've, with that and witnessed that culture. Is there a transformation happening over there? Is there that saving face culture changing? How, how slow, how rapid has it been? Well, it depends where you are. Um, and, you know, one of the things, I mean, I'm speaking, I, I think, predominantly to an American audience, and I, I just need to, to school you on something. Asia is not a country. Right, Asia right. Many, that's many true, countries. very true. Asia is many, many countries and many, many cultures. I mean, and, and if you think that culture is wrapped up in language and, and, and a subcontinent of India has 250 languages, that means you've got 250 cultures in India. Yes. Um, you know, here in Singapore, we have three major races and the others, which is, I'm included as, as a Caucasian, I'm in the others. Um, you know, each language has a culture. So, right. you know, anything I say from this point on is a massive generalization and I want to pre-frame it with that. Yeah. Um, it is changing and, uh, you know, obviously, you know, uh, those that are educated overseas and come back have a, obviously a wider viewpoint. And that goes for Asians and it goes for Americans as well. Sure. But, you know, travel broadens the mind and, and it, it really drives that the true humility that my, my perspective is just my perspective and somebody else may have an equally valid perspective and the acceptance of that. And I think that's actually a very core piece of leadership. I'd like to just slip that in there right now. Yeah. And um, so when people grow up in their own backyard and... Uh, they're, they're inculcated by their culture in, in the same way that it, the last thing a fish becomes aware of is water. So, so it's changing because of globalization and because mm. of exposure to different perspectives. Um, and I think, I think people now have sort of different cultural software. Um, and it's a bit like, you know, with a, with a computer, you can actually partition the hard drive to run different, different operating systems. And what I see is that people who, who join entrepreneurial organizations that are promoting risk-taking and out there can adopt that software for the period of time that they're in the organization. And then they, they step out and, and join a family dinner. And, and they default back to a completely different operating system where they have you know, the concept of ancestor worship and, and, and respect and don't, don't, don't speak up because it's the sound of an empty vessel. So there's a, there's a significant sort of... Uh, multi-operational or multitasking in terms of the, the culture there. Um, and and you, you want to be careful about stereotyping because you get some very creative people. Um, and yet, um, India has not produced a Google or a Yahoo. Um, um, and yet it's created, you know, it's got massive organizations that sometimes you've never heard of, but it hasn't as yet created the entrepreneurial mold. Yeah. Um, China is changing rapidly with the, with the one-child uh, policy in that, you know, if you imagine a nation of, of single children that have been doted upon by their parents, the sense of entitlement that those children are growing up with, with modern technology, um, you're going to see a massive shift in the, in the cultural drivers there as these, as these little emperors enter the workforce. You know, I interviewed uh, Professor Rao a couple weeks ago, and I was talking to him, and I look at my downloads of my podcast, and the number two um, nation that uh, – United States is obviously first where I get most of my downloads. My second is India by a large, large margin. There is this huge hunger for leadership, and when I – and the comments on my blog, the comments on my post, the, the emails I receive, a huge chunk comes from India. I find that kind of fascinating. What are your thoughts on that? Well, as I said, you know, I'm, 
I, I made a mistake myself the other day. I was doing some I was doing some coaching just for five leaders in a room in, in India. And I obviously I'd researched the company I was working with. It was a company that had started in Sri Lanka um, and moved into India is now global. It's listed uh, on the New York Stock Exchange. And I initially thought it was an American company um, and then discovered it, it was started in Sri Lanka. Um, and I was, I was working with these leaders and, and one person said, well, I've only been with the company for a year. And I said, well, who were you with before? You know, expecting it to be, you know, a Microsoft or a Cisco or... A, and she mentioned a company and I didn't know them. And, and it... I could feel in the room my credibility points went down 20 mm. points that I didn't know this company and I was, and I was just a silly thing and I, and I apologized and then I, I went and did the research. That company has 250,000 employees oh my. and I didn't know who they were. And again, you know, that's a Western arrogance, isn't it? And yeah. so there are many, you know, if a company has 250,000 employees in the USA, it's significant, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. You wouldn't know who they, you wouldn't know who they were, wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't. Well, I, and in fact, that's not quite true. I did, but I didn't know them well enough to sort of really get the name recognition. And I realized just how, how ridiculous I was to have not done that. And I've, I, you know, since then, I've been fixing that problem in terms of doing my research on who are the top 100 companies in, the, in, in India. And they are huge and they're profitable. Um, and, you know, if, for you to say that it's surprising, with the utmost respect, Richard, shows a level of naivety on your yeah, part. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly right. Uh, and, 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 the, and again, the ins, you know, and I said I made this mistake myself, so I, there's no way I'm being accusatory in the sense that we just need to wake up. It is a massive powerhouse of labor and, and productivity. And because of that, um, a huge need for leadership. Lots yeah. of management, but not very much leadership. Yeah, and I think when, when I was talking with Professor Rao about this, and we talked in a lot of it, we think it's this kind of transformation or this shift from you know a highly bureaucratic uh, state becoming less more. There's still the problem of that, but there's there's less bureaucracy than there was in the past, and you got this huge kind of passion and insurgence for entrepreneurship. That again, you're right. I was naive to that it even existed until I did this podcast. I love my fans from there. This is a huge base, and I find it literally quite you know pretty exciting actually to see that there's such a passion for entrepreneurship i wish i would see more of that here in the united states i think we've lost some of that passion for entrepreneurship that was maybe prevalent 20 30 years ago even 40 years ago that is possible and i think the thing that you want to watch with india of course is what they do have is a passion for learning the yeah. concept of guru and disciple or sannyasin um, and they're very respectful of anybody that has new ideas, they don't. They don't. They'll, they'll open their arms to new ideas, and and uh, so you know, I, I'm I'm treated as a as a celebrity when I when I go to India, which um, is all very nice um, because they're just so hungry for information. Yeah, that, that's the, the the key word there was hunger, and that's what I've noticed even through this you know small podcast of mine that there's this hunger for uh, leadership and everything, and so it, I, I don't know. I just find it fascinating. We were talking a little bit before we started, and we were kind of comparing leadership philosophical notes if you will and on where we all stood with each other and i think one of the big things that i am really passionate about is again is pushing decision making and leadership authority down to the absolute lowest level and at the same time making sure that people understand or leaders understand the difference between accountability and responsibility you are, are, are working with a lot of big companies and have worked with a lot of big companies what do you think the biggest leadership challenge you see uh, across the globe is the biggest leadership challenge in your mind 
Well, it is around those two things as we spoke. It is about clarity around responsibility and accountability. People use the two words interchangeably. Yep. So, and, and because of that, you know, when I, when I do workshops or coaching, I need to define that. So, you know, you plugged my book at the beginning and thank you for that. So, you know, it's, it's, it's published by McGraw-Hill in 2012. It's called Self-Leadership by myself, Andrew Bryant, and my co-author, Dr. Anna Kazan. We, uh, we looked at a model. And, of course, if you, if you write a leadership book, you have a, to have a two-by-two two box model. Otherwise, it can't be taught on an MBA program. Uh, pardon my cynicism. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I love it. Um, and, and I think what you want to think about is, is a sort of a vertical axis of going from bottom being directive to top being empowering and, and a horizontal axis uh, going from low autonomy to high autonomy. So autonomy is the responsibility, the self-responsibility around the ability to take a decision. So a lot of, you know, we, we talked about the, the fear of failure, that, that's a low autonomy, that's a, a low drive to take decision and take personal responsibility. I believe we're responsible for our own thoughts, our own feelings, our own words, and our own actions. Nobody can make us think anything without our allowing them to do so. You know, as the great American uh, Eleanor Roosevelt said, you know, nobody can make you feel inferior without your permission. Right? It's your thoughts and feelings are your thoughts and feelings, and your actions are your actions. If a child says to a parent, "Oh, he made me do it." You know, the parent jumps down their throat and says, no, 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 you, you know, you're responsible for your actions. And yet I hear adults with the same kind of childish language patterns saying, well, you know, it's not my fault. I didn't do it. You know, I can't do it. You know, I don't have the power, et cetera, et cetera. Well, so hang on a moment. They're your thoughts, your feelings, they're your actions, they're your words. You need to be able to take responsibility around this. Now, of course, the counter argument is there's certain cause and effect for doing that, and that's the culture, right? So if the leader or the culture is very directive and you start to speak up, um, then you can get slammed for that. Right? Um, and, you know, politically you could see that in North, you know, the, the, in the North African Spring. You know, if you've got a very directive leader like Gaddafi, for instance, and you, you decided you didn't agree with him and you disappeared forever. Right. Until such time as the autonomy of the whole group move to being much more autonomous. We want responsibility. We want, it, we want our own leadership. And you move along that horizontal axis. And you see that, of course, with the, the millennials coming in and saying, no, 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 we don't want you old guys telling us how to run our, our lives. We want, to, we want to make our own decisions. Now, the fact they may not have experience to make those decisions is another conversation, but they want the autonomy. Mm -hmm. So obviously, if, you, if, you've got, if you've got low autonomy and high directive as the bottom left-hand square, you've, you've got command control. And, and this command control leadership, has, as you appreciate, with an ex-military background, does have its role. You know, if it's an emergency situation, you don't have the time to have focus groups. Correct. If I'm flying 50,000 feet in the air and the oxygen masks drop from the ceiling, I do not want the captain to come out of the cockpit and say, oh, excuse me, ladies and gentlemen, got a bit of a problem. Let's have a focus group and let's decide what you want me to do about it. Right. right? At that point, you want command control leadership. What I see happening um, is Western leaders coming into Asia who have a much more empowering, high up on the vertical axis, uh, and, and they come into a team that has previously not had autonomy. And they say, okay, now, you know, I'm going to give you P&L responsibility or I'm going to give you, you know, I'm going to give you some freedom and I expect you guys to be professionals. But they've never had the opportunity to be autonomous. They've, they've, they've learned some helplessness. And, and this creates sort of just a, 
uh, chaos and, and low performance. So that leader then defaults to sliding back down the scale to directive. And you see this going up and down in organizations from high empowering back to directive, high empowering back to directive, guard railing, as you would say in America. Mm-hmm. Um, neither of which situations drives entrepreneurship or innovation or creativity. If, if the leader maintains directive style and the people become more autonomous, they either become disengaged, leave, or you get rebellion. So what we need to do is to move both dials simultaneously, which is quite challenging, is we need to push the responsibility with people and, be, and clearly articulate what they're accountable to. Yes. So they're responsible for but they're accountable to. So they're accountable to what, what are you signing up to? What, what is the code of conduct that we're having in this culture? You're accountable to that and you're accountable to your team. However, you're responsible for your own thoughts, feelings, and your actions, your own attitude. That's, I don't have to motivate you. You choose to motivate yourself because that's your responsibility. And as we move both dials up, so we move along the horizontal axis, encouraging autonomy and responsibility, into empowerment, being articulating the accountability, we move to the top right-hand square, which I like to call self-leadership. And the, the, the reframe I have to do with many people is that self-leadership is not selfish. When we, in fact, when our ego is full, we're not egotistical. When we know who we are, that's a healthy ego. And when we know who we are, we can effectively operate as a member of a team because we're not needy, we're ready to contribute, we're ready to listen to somebody else, we're, we're ready to challenge ideas and, 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 and sharpen those ideas one against another so that they become better ideas. Right. Um, and, and this is the area that you know, I've been developing. And the challenge is, as I said, is, is areas of low autonomy and high directiveness. Well, that's the most difficult square too. I think you know, we would all admit that self-leadership is the most difficult. Maybe that's why we don't step into that box as much as we should, because it is such a challenge. It really is. To know yourself and be, I think we, you know, to be technically and tactically proficient in something is what we focus on, but to really know ourselves and who we are and to look at ourselves in the mirror and say, this is the type of leader I really am and I want to change. I think that's where a lot of the, it's difficult. So kudos to you ah. for for recognizing that the, the key to all this is you got to know yourself you got to fix the insides before you can even be moderately successful on the outside i think well i agree and yet society doesn't do that society yeah. tends to socialize us before we develop our own identity yeah that's right so you know ego starts to be formed at two years old and then a child sort of says mine right. when it owns a toy and then a parent says no no you have to share and, and so as well-meaning parents, we're trying to socialize two- and three-year-olds, and they're, they're, they're little cavemen. And, and really, we, we, we want to develop who they are and what, what they own and their own powers, and then introduce them into society. But we don't do that. And so we become a social being before we become an individual being. And so often, we never get an opportunity to think about who am I, what are my strengths, what's my contributions, um, and what drives me. Uh, and this is why people go off to find themselves because they don't know who they are because they've been socialized yeah. and, and they, they only know who they are in reference to their peers or in reference to their social group. And, and sometimes their social group is a disconnect from who they actually are and that's why they sort of rush off to sit on an ashram and, and, and ponder their navel. <laughs> um, not that there's anything wrong with that. I mean, I've done it myself. <laughs> so I think, you know, just societally, we, we, haven't, we haven't recognized that we need to develop self and then we can independently and interdependently operate 
as opposed to what really happens is in relationships, husband and wife, um, is, is codependent relationships. It's you're responsible to make me happy instead of my happiness is my responsibility. Right. This is pro- this question or the answer to this question is probably tied to what we're talking about. But what, from what you've seen, what is the um, probably the biggest mistake you witness leaders making more fre- frequently than others? Well, it's it's the impatience. It is you know it's it's the drive for task is is the you know is they don't lay the foundations, so they don't develop you know they don't find and attract the right people and develop that relationship and then go over after the task. They go after the task and try to build the relationship oh, yeah. afterwards. It's like trying to fix the airplane engine while it's still flying. Right. So it, it, it's lack of building the foundations. You know? And it's, you know, if we draw back to your, your, your military experience before you, you know, before you were operational, you know, the, the process that you went through built the relationship. So when the task was required, the relationship was established. Yeah. And you never had to think twice about that. That doesn't happen in corporate. It's, you're driving the task, and that often destroys trust and relationship. Yep. Uh, and then when a crisis happens, there is no trust. And, uh, and Columbia Business School calculated that a lack of trust doubles the cost of doing business. Well, so true. Investing in those relationships and taking care of the people. I mean, that's probably the biggest lesson I got, or the one that was drummed the most in the Marine Corps was... Look, you can all, all of this can be summed up by just saying, taking care of the folks and they'll take care of you. I mean, that's very, rather mm. simplistic, but there's so much truth in that. And it, is. it takes a tremendous yeah. amount of effort to be intentional about walking through those doors and every day, what can I do to lift these, these people up? And sure. when you're in an environment like the Marine Corps where it's all about tactics and mission and everything else, but that is the driving force. I'm going to learn to take care of these people. And everything else seems to fall into place eventually. Sure. I, I would, if you don't mind, just pick up a, on a phrase and perhaps just, just perhaps adjust that phrase. I, I don't think a leader's job is to take care of the people because that's parenting. Mm. I, I think I just want to clarify when, when you say taking care of the people, I think the important thing, and we talked about this before we started, it's, it's connecting with their why are they there today. E- yes. What's their intent? I think, I think taking care of does not mean parenting. I think taking care of is challenging these people y- yeah. to take ownership. Uh, and I think that's that's for me is taking care of. It, it's treating people as an adult, not as a child. Well said. Yeah, I agree with you 100. percent And you're exactly right. I don't mean taking care of that. I'm I'm here to, you know, satisfy your every whim or your every desire. You know, just like an effective parent would. You know, you, you're not their friend. You're their parent, and a successful parent is going to help them become the best human being they can possibly can. And sometimes that means tough love. Sometimes that means command and control sometimes that means empowering and all that involved but yeah well well said I, I agree with what you said so thank you 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 talk about innovation and I think one time especially with since and I see this in organizations that I've that I've worked in that have been rather large and monolithic and bureaucratic and and this seems like the larger you get the the tendency for innovation uh, or the institution to dampen inspiration in your mind, how do you keep that from happening, especially in large organizations? Well, large organizations are made up of individual people, and individual people collect in, in, in groupings, right? So a large organization is built of a series of tribes. Um, and, and so it's the recognition that it is the small autonomous group that's going to be innovative. Mm. And those organizations that have been successful have recognized that, and they, they give people... 
um, the opportunity. They find those, they find the innovators, and they 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 put them in incubators where they're allowed to make mistakes and play and try. Where you know the, the quarterly KPI of finance has been removed, which allows them to experiment, or you know they they institutionalize a day of you work on whatever you want to work on. I mean that that's passed in uh, in some organisations, but as you know, I mean the, the story of Gmail came out of not the fact that Google was actually wanting to have an email client; that it, it, it organically came from the innovation. Right. So. Innovative, innovative organizations break people up into smaller groups and allow that level of autonomy. They recognize that, um, that there are people that are good executors and there are people that are good ideas people and they need to perhaps uh, initially separate them and then put them together in particular forums so that the ideas can then be translated into execution. Uh, it's recognizing that we have you know, different personalities. Some people are high ideas and some people are high execution and some people can bridge the gap. And you need all of them and you need to set up a system where they can work together. So um, it, it's, it's recognizing the power of the autonomous small group. I love it. Well, I love it. Well, I'm looking at the clock here and I got to tell you, it, it goes by so quick. And uh, there's a reason why, sir, you are on the road almost half the year speaking and coaching. Uh, you are definitely a thought leader on leadership. And I appreciate you taking the time to come on the show today. Where can people reach out and, f- and find you, get in touch with you? Um, well, a uh, couple of places. My blog is, is easy. It's selfleader, S-E-L-F-L-E-A-D-E-R.com, selfleader.com. And that's the blog. And there's your free resources. For those that want to book me as a, as a speaker or a coach, you go to andrew-bryant.com. So that's my name, andrew-bryant.com. And check out his book, Self-Leadership, How to Become More Successfully Efficient and Effective Leader from the Inside Out. I love it. I know that book is going to be on my must-read and must-have list and something I'm going to go to back and forth. Andrew, thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure, Richard. Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership eBook, a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, consistent, and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com.